I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Headlines first. Trump still has to go to trial in just 189 days from now. And he still apparently does not know that there is no legal mechanism for him to appeal. You cannot appeal the judge's court schedule. Nor still does at least half the Republican Party understand this, nor still does at least half of all media news understand this, including the BBC And thus, in sum, Trump is still royally effed. And after Mark Meadows inexplicably testified for more than four hours yesterday trying to get a glorified change of venue in the Atlanta election subversion conspiracy trial by using a singular strategy of confessing to everything... The judge there says he'll have a ruling as soon as possible as to whether it stays in local court in Atlanta or in a federal court, presumably elsewhere in Georgia, with a jury pool more favorable to Meadows and Trump. And when they say more favorable, of course, they actually mean more white. I said here 24 hours ago that if Judge Chutkin selected a trial date in the federal election subversion case, and the date was in January or February, it was a sure sign that Trump was effed. And I'm giving myself this one because March 4th is close enough to February. The point of that prediction was that such an opening day choice would indicate that Chutkin really is going to deploy her plan for disciplining Trump. On that fateful Friday when, 24 hours after he said he understood that he had to be circumspect in public and on social media and could not threaten or harass or try to intimidate the witnesses, the prosecutors, the judge, 
and he began a weekend of doing nothing but threatening and harassing and intimidating them, Judge Chutkin came back with what seemed like a wishy-washy response. She wasn't going to jail Trump, no matter how much I wished for it on my lucky beads. She was going to do something far, far worse to him. She was going to assume that he was doing all this to try to poison the jury pool, like he could think that rationally or that far ahead, and so she would just, in response, speed up the trial to protect the jury pool. The prosecution wanted the trial to open 127 days from now. Trump countered with 947 days, two and a half years. Chutkin's compromise reeks of, hey, Trump, this is punishment. Please enjoy being effed. 189 days. It's glorious. And it was accompanied, when his lawyers read a short version of that schedule uh, for the months ahead for Trump, with one gigantic, so what? She compared his upcoming schedule, which I will review in full in a moment, and his complaints about having to change his dear, beloved schedule to a theoretical pro-athlete, which must have pleased Trump, who really does think he would have been Mickey Mantle or Jack Nicklaus, complaining that the court dates would conflict with the athlete's schedule of games and practices. Judge Chutkin said in legalese, who gives a... There is one thing here Trump truly fears... The other essential ingredient besides a guilty verdict that can put him behind bars, and that is a speedy trial. And his nitwit co-defendants, his supposed minions, Ken Cheesebro and Mark Meadows and Sidney Powell, all invoked the Georgia speedy trial law. So that one is already on track to start nearly two months earlier than originally planned by the D.A., And now, on the federal level, Trump is being beaten up by the judge who knows it is the one thing Trump truly fears. And we will see you on March 4th. Now, as to what Meadows did yesterday, I do not get this. I do not get this. I do not get this. Mark Meadows went down to Georgia and spoke at his own motions hearing and let himself be cross-examined and the courtroom was filled with lawyers for other defendants looking into this same idea. Get this transferred to federal court. And Trump had to listen, at least by extension, as Meadows just started talking and talking and talking and talking and incriminating self and confessing and contradicting and admitting and revealing. And I do not get this. I do not get the reward Here is what happens if the Meadows part gets transferred from Fulton County to federal court, or if all of the trials get transferred to federal court. You get a trial in a court in northern Georgia. So, more white people in the jury pool. That's it. Here's what you do not get. You do not get a different prosecutor. Fonnie Willis can continue to try this case or direct her office's attorneys as they try it. You do not get a federal sentencing guideline. You do not get a venue in which if you get convicted, you can be pardoned by a president. The state pardon rules continue to apply and they deny anybody but the pardons and parole board from pardoning anybody. And even they can't do it until five years after you've served your whole sentence. And only then if you show remorse, (laughs) Trump remorse. (laughs) Now, look, I get it. 
if you're on trial, especially if you happen to be guilty, you need to maximize your chances of a racist jury letting you off the hook because it still has not adjusted to Appomattox. I get that. But why did that mean that Mark Meadows had to testify for four hours that, yeah, he was Trump's gatekeeper and he was at every meeting and he was on every phone call and he was the guy others went to to get Trump to listen to them. And he went to Georgia and he arranged the Raffensburger phone call and he was in the meeting with the Michigan politicos. And wait, 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 that Michigan meeting and the Raffensburger call were about overturning the election results in Georgia and Michigan. Really? That's what Trump meant about those 11,790 votes? I'll be damned. When Meadows was not incriminating himself, under oath, mind you, easily read back as evidence at trial and always admissible since he was under oath at his own request. When Meadows was not incriminating himself, Meadows was shoveling so fast he really lost the plot. At one point, he said that all he knew about the Raffensburg phone call was that it was an attempt by Trump to find a, quote, less litigious resolution to the Georgia presidential vote. I can see in my mind's eye the prosecution lawyers in a neat orderly row doing a simultaneous triple spit take. If that's what Trump was doing, calling Raffensperger, hoping to make it all less litigious, that means it was to some degree litigious. And that means it was a campaign litigation phone call. And what the hell is the chief of staff at the White House doing on a campaign litigation phone call? Because that violates the Hatch Act. And they're not going to grant you a federal trial here if the only way you can get there is by proving you were violating the laws that say what federal administration officials can and cannot do. We already know Meadows flipped to Jack Smith. The whole or in part way of flipping. He obviously was the guy who told Smith about the ghostwriter, publisher, Liz Harrington, Mark Milley, Iran war plan revelation meeting and that there was a recording of it. We'll see eventually just how badly he actually did flip. But what he did in Georgia yesterday just brings us back to my theme for the day. Trump is royally so now with all that out of the way here is your revised trump schedule for the rest of 2023 and early 2024 and i think it will not take you the whole of this list to begin to appreciate what has happened to trump almost inadvertently he is now being chased by every judge and every political deadline imaginable, and they are beginning to collide with each other. Here we go. September 6th, arraignments for the Trump 19, Trump, Giuliani, Powell, Eastman, the whole gang in Fulton County. September 7th, the next day, classified discovery production for the documents trial in Florida. September 14th, the week after that, Section 10 notice due to Judge Cannon. September 27th, the second GOP debate, which he will skip because he really is a coward. October 2nd, the start of the Tish James New York State Trump Organization trial. That will be three of them in progress at the same time. 
October 9th, all motions due to Judge Chutkin. October 10th, Defense Section 4 challenge forms due to Judge Cannon. October 17th, Section 4 hearing before Judge Cannon. October 20th, live golf match play at the Trump course in Doral, Florida. October 21, more golf. October 22, more golf because you can't get enough golf. October 23, motion responses due to Judge Chutkin. And October 23 is the most recent proposed first day of the Fulton County trial in Atlanta. November 3rd, pre-trial motions due to Judge Cannon. November 6th, motion replies due to Judge Chutkin. November 8th, Rule 16 disclosures due to Judge Cannon. November 15th, Defense Rule 16 disclosures due to Judge Cannon. November 17th, Defense Section 5 notices due to Judge Cannon. November 28th, Status Conference with Judge Cannon. December 4th, evidence submissions due to Judge Chutkin. December 11th, expert witness lists due to Judge Chutkin. And pre-trial motions hearing before Judge Cannon. December 15th, Section 6A motions due to Judge Cannon. December 18th, exhibits list due to Judge Chutkin. December 27th, hope you enjoyed Christmas, motions to suppress evidence due to Judge Chutkin. January 4th, Section 6A response motions due to Judge Cannon. January 9th, no, no motions on evidence suppression due to Judge Chutkin. January 15th, Jury instructions due to Judge Chutkin and Iowa caucuses and opening day of the second E. Jean Carroll lawsuit trial. The next day, January 16th, Section 6A hearing before Judge Cannon. January TBD, New Hampshire primary. January 29th, start after six years of that pyramid scheme class action lawsuit against Trump. February 8th, the Nevada caucuses. February 12th, joint discovery report to Judge Cannon. February 24th, witness lists due to Judge Chutkin and South Carolina primary. February 26th, remaining motions hearing before Judge Cannon. February 27th, Michigan primary. March 2, Idaho caucus. March 3, District of Columbia primary. March 4th, opening day of the federal election subversion case. Remember to bring Judge Chutkin an apple. March 5th, Super Tuesday. 14 Republican primaries. March 12th, three more primaries, including Georgia. While the Georgia trial is certainly underway. March 20th, evidence motions to Judge Cannon. March 25th, start of the Stormy Daniels trial in New York. May 20th, start of the stolen documents trial in Florida. May 26th, good. More golf. Live golf at the Trump golf course in Washington. July 15th, Republican National Convention. And as a side note, that is the political wing of the Republican Party holding its national convention, not the paramilitary wing of the Republican Party. And all other days should be assumed to be booked for Trump to bitch and moan about everything as usual. Two updates. All hell has broken loose in New Hampshire over 14.3, the disqualification clause, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. The balloon-headed kid the fascists hired because he can spew their drivel for dozens of hours a week, Charlie Kirk, read the news about Trump's own former New Hampshire Senate candidate, Corky Messner, saying he was meeting with the Secretary of State there to discuss invoking 14.3 because although he remains a Trump supporter and would vote for Trump, somebody has to stand up for the Constitution. And Kirk 
turned it into, dumbed it down into something his audience could understand. Trump betrayed. New Hampshire trying ban Trump. Attack New Hampshire. Send flying monkeys. Now it's war. The chairman of the state Republican Party has attacked Corky Messner. That group I mentioned yesterday, Free Speech for People, with its letters to all 50 state secretaries of state, well, its letter to the one in New Hampshire has gotten there, David Scanlon, Secretary of State. Now he's going to the Attorney General to find out what the Attorney General thinks, and Scanlon is also still answering all the calls from the Flying Monkeys because Charlie Kirk's listeners busted the switchboard. And the second update, we have a clarification from Jacksonville's 10th District and Councilwoman Jacoby Pittman, who, and big props to her, gets it. She understands. When the crowd at the Jacksonville shooting vigil booed and heckled Ron DeSantis on Sunday night, and she took the mic back from DeSantis and told them that this was not about parties today and that a bullet doesn't know a party, she was, by her own admission, embracing the lesser of two evils. Ms. Pittman says, firstly, Governor DeSantis was never supposed to speak at the vigil. He was supposed to just show up and to be introduced by the moderator and just be there. A reasonable thing, no matter how much this man is a fascist, a reasonable thing for a governor to do, to just be there. Then, to the councilwoman's shock, the moderator called DeSantis up to give remarks. Instead of saying something smart like, I grieve with you. I'll do everything my office is capable of doing for you. And out of respect, I will now sit my ass down. Naturally, DeSantis instead went into a speech about how he was going to cover the security costs at the original target of the murderer, Edward Waters University and HBCU. And he this and he that. The councilwoman said at that point, she knew trouble loomed. The crowd knew DeSantis's racist complicity. It was not about to forget it. So she reclaimed the floor, in a manner of speaking, and gave her brief speech about not being political. And everybody went home in one piece. DeSantis and his grinning idiot of a wife with him. I do not support his policies, Pittman explained. I appreciate the difficulty of her position in the moment, and I appreciate how easy it is to second-guess that moment from the safety of thousands of miles away. The problem is the second half of her statement will now achieve immortality. The first part would have been sufficient. Today is not about political parties. Great. But the second part, the part about a bullet not knowing a party, that will be played forever every time there is a shooting in fascist media. Fox may start its own channel with just that soundbite. Forever. Because mass shootings happen because of the Republican Party, and therefore the Republican Party will use anything said by any Democrat that can seemingly reduce its guilt, responsibility, and culpability by one one millionth of one percent. Also of interest here, Tucker Carlson says it's good for a man to get fired. Well, I'll defer to him on this. This is four times he's been fired now. That's next. This is Countdown.
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline, Washington, D.C. If you think the current chief of the ludicrous judicial watch, Tom Fitton, is a moron, the guy who isn't a lawyer but tells Trump what to do legally, well, you never met the previous chief, Larry Clayman, ousted by the outfit years ago and now running a knockoff called Freedom Watch. He has popped back into the news by claiming that a citizen grand jury has indicted President Biden and members of his family and that after a, quote, citizen's trial, a, quote, citizen's judge has handed down felony convictions. Clayman has emailed his followers phony videos and evidence and says the sentencing will be uh, today. Quote, we will then commission established law enforcement and the military to take Biden and his son and his brother into custody if they don't turn themselves in and, frankly, put them in the slammer. 
Clayman also denounced the Marxian Jewish left and called for a counter-revolution. And if this sounds like QAnon, yeah, but Clayman's motive is even more cynical. He's doing all this as part of a fundraiser for his ersatz judicial watch. He is fundraising off QAnon. He did this once with Obama. He held a rally he claimed would force people to force him to resign. Did he resign? Did Obama resign as president? Anybody remember? Obama. Dateline, Maine somewhere. Uh, Bear in the woods, Maine. Tucker Carlson has revealed the great secret of life. He has announced that getting fired by Fox was a good thing because, quote, the problem with men who are successful is that they start to think they're Jesus. Getting fired reminds you you are just a ridiculous person, and in the end, you'll die alone. Men need to be humiliated fairly regularly to keep their souls pure. Well, by that measure, I guess Tucker Carlson's soul is the purest in the world. Fox makes it four different news outlets that have now fired him. CNN in 2005, PBS in 2005, MSNBC in 2008, and Fox in 2023. And still, oddly enough, he thinks he's Jesus. Nancy Faust, Dateline Toledo, Ohio. Joe Wurzelbacher is dead. He was famous, then infamous, then a running joke during the 2008 presidential campaign as Joe the Plumber. In fact, he was a former plumber who asked Barack Obama a tax policy question reportedly supplied by GOP operatives during an Obama walking tour of Ohio during the 2008 campaign. Turned out most of Wurzelbacher's story was made up or exaggerated, and it didn't help that John McCain basically grabbed Joe the Plumber and made one entire debate against Obama about Joe the Plumber. He said Joe the Plumber 25 times. Wurzelbacher himself later ran for Marcy Captor's seat in Congress. And then in a campaign commercial, he compared gun control to the Holocaust. He got smoked. He said the Jewish victims had died because of gun control that he said had been enacted by the Nazis in 1939. When he ran for the Ohio congressional seat as a Republican, of course, this was still the kind of thing you did not say, as opposed to the kind of thing that you would now say to get the nomination in Ohio. Joe Wurzelbacher was 49 years old. Still ahead on Countdown, it used to be asked every day, and millions actually wondered where he was and if they had won the contest on the Today Show. Where in the world is Matt Lauer? Yeah, the current answer is, well, we're hoping hell. The Daily Beast's confider reports that Lauer, who began to explore trying to restart his media career last February by means of doing a podcast. A podcast? Who does a podcast? Anyway, uh, Daily Beast now says he's apparently given up on it. Quote, Lauer hung up on confider when reached for comment. Lucky confider. 
it's a good reason to retell the story of me and Matt Lauer and how all of us at NBC in those days knew not that he was violent, but that he was a manipulative bastard coming up in things I promise not to tell. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants and morons and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's. Where in the world are the worst persons in the world? The bronze, Melanie Zanona of CNN. More clueless access journalism about the House Select Subcommittee to obstruct justice or whatever it's called. Quote, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and top Republicans have begun to strategize about how to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. She begins her story. Not until the ninth paragraph does Melanie Zanona bother to mention that Republicans have only, quote, unverified allegations neither of which Republicans have been able to confirm. Even some Republicans are still not convinced that they have uncovered any evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. Ninth paragraph to mention, oh, by the way, the Republicans, this is just another political stunt because that's all they do. That and coups. I mean, if you're going to both sides a story about a phony impeachment, maybe you should put both sides in the first, say, two paragraphs. The runners-up, the National Rifle Association, they would have been embarrassed by the article by Melanie Zanona. The NRA tweeted an image of the president's quote that nobody needs an AR-15 period with the claim, and they make this claim the day between the latest two mass shootings, quote, millions of law-abiding citizens own and use AR-15s to defend themselves and their families. Turns out research indicates maybe it's not millions. According to the Gun Violence Archives, the number of Americans who used AR-15s to defend themselves last year was four. Not millions, four. Not 400, four. Not 4,000, four. Not not 40,000, four. One stopping a shooter, one stopping a robbery of a gun seller, and two stopping home invasions. Four. Not millions, four AR-15s. But our winner, Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, who represents uh, the county of Trumpville, apparently. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Democracy survives not because of the efforts of those of us trying to preserve it, but because of the stupidity of people trying to destroy it like not so bright Byron over here. From his tweet yesterday, quote, Joe Biden and his party shuttered schools, forced masks on their faces, and put vaccines in their arms, all while holding our children back in ways that will have long-lasting impacts, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Byron, Congressman, Congressman Donalds, Mr. Ass Clown of Florida, who, who, who was the, who was the president when the schools were shuttered for the pandemic? What year did the masks go on faces? What year was the pandemic when it started? Who rolled out the vaccines and boasted that we had to give him personal credit for it again and again and again? The answers, Byron, are Trump 2020 and Trump. Congressman Byron, you couldn't be doing more for the Democratic Party if they paid you Donald's. Today's worst person in the world. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe 
Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And somebody asked me the other day, whatever happened to Matt Lauer? And I said, I don't know, but I hope it was unpleasant. If the name Matt Lauer is remembered at all today, it is for two facts. One, that he was the face of NBC News until November 29th, 2017, when the network suddenly announced there were credible allegations against him of sexual misconduct and that he had been fired effective immediately. And two, the lesser known fact that everybody at NBC knew he was an evil figure who dominated all of management at 30 Rock and in many cases coerced them into looking the other way, despite decades of abuse of women employees and of bullying and retribution against male employees, including other people on TV. This was so well known inside NBC News that even some of us who had left and had been gone for years knew in advance he was to be fired. I found out, like, four days before it happened. And much of the bad conduct, at least the bad conduct in the office involving the male employees, I saw happen in real time. When I returned to NBC in February 2003, I was one of Lauer's favorites, for some reason. 
My show, Countdown, was the last program he watched before he went to sleep, or maybe more correctly, before he went to bed. He used to do these moronic where in the world is Matt Lauer segments in which he created video clues as to his whereabouts that would run on the Today Show. And one day, one of his producers called and said Lauer was such a fan of Countdown, he wanted to do a special clue just for Countdown. Well, we had like 200,000 viewers a night. We took whatever we could get. Some free Matt Lauer? Sure. By the way, I was reminded recently that one MSNBC wag used to answer that rhetorical question, where in the world is Matt Lauer, by answering, in the bedroom of somebody else's wife. Anyway, Lauer. If you think the Republicans' ability to turn any tragedy into a political issue is something new, or that television's ability to turn any tragedy into ratings is something new, or that Matt Lauer's ability to make anything worse was something new, consider the case of Terry Schiavo. Terry Schiavo was a woman in Florida, 26 years old, struck by cardiac arrest. It did not kill her, but it left her in a living nightmare. She was in a, quote, persistent vegetative state, not brain dead, but neither was she conscious, and worse. Her eyes were open, and her head moved constantly and involuntarily and in a regular pattern. Her parents, I guess understandably unwilling to accept this terrible fate, quickly discovered that if you moved a balloon through her hospital room, Terry Schiavo's head and gaze would seem to follow the balloon. Unfortunately, if you did not move a balloon through her hospital room, Terry Schiavo's head and gaze would still follow the same exact path as it did when there was a balloon. Her husband, Michael, spent seven years in the courts trying to get his wife's feeding tube removed and thus release her and him and everybody in the family from this living hell. And her parents fought him. And finally, in 2003, the parents went public. They showed video of their daughter her head following that balloon around the hospital room. They contacted every politician who would take their call. The Republican leader in the Senate, Dr. Bill Frist of Tennessee, a heart surgeon, said on the Senate floor that of course he could not diagnose a patient just from a videotape. And then he proceeded to diagnose a patient just from a videotape. He said on the Senate floor she should not be taken off life support. The Shibos eventually got Republicans to pass a bill in the House and Senate, taking her case away from the Florida courts and putting it into the federal courts. And President George W. Bush actually flew back from vacation in Texas to Washington just to sign that law on camera, of course. This was a topic for all of tabloid television and for all of tabloid television that pretends it is not tabloid television, like the Today Show. And it went on for months. Eventually, there was a pack of guests willing to appear on your show and imply cleverly that Michael Scheibo had caused his wife's vegetative state and was now trying to, quote, finish the job. From my own network, Joe Scarborough, who had been a lawyer, put on Terry Scheibo's brother and sister, and they both implied there was, quote, foul play. Joey Scars put it this way. I am quoting him. They can attack every last person who is trying to save this young woman from starvation. But in the end, Americans shocked by this macabre chapter in American politics will see the Democrats as the party on the side of death and see George Bush as the defender of defenseless, unquote. Joe Scarborough, MSNBC. 
Joe Scarborough is a jackass and a fraud. If you watch his show, you are getting hustled. If you go on his show, there's another word for that. Anyway, finally, sanity prevailed. A court ordered the feeding tube removed in March 2005. Two weeks later, Terry Schiavo died. The autopsy showed her brain was half its normal size. It had been irreversibly damaged 15 years earlier. There were no signs of physical trauma, not the slightest indication of foul play. In January of 2006, I got a phone call. It was Michael Schiavo. He said, rather matter-of-factly, that he had tried to avoid watching as the tragedy he and his wife endured was turned into a multi-network soap opera. But he found that there was one reporter who tried to balance the hysteria and to treat him fairly, and that that was me, and he wanted to know if I wanted to be the first person to interview him. Nothing fancy, he said. This guy, Matt Lauer, he said, had been calling him once a week and wanted to walk with him on the beaches of Florida and do a three-hour interview for Today and Nightly News and Dateline and MSNBC. Michael Scheibo didn't want to do any of that, and he didn't like Matt Lauer at all. And he was thinking if he had to sit down with one of the celebrity interviewers, it would probably be Diane Sawyer, but he hadn't made up his mind yet. What Michael Scheibo wondered was if he could just go to a studio in Tampa one morning before work and have me go to a studio in New York and I could interview him remotely. Well, naturally, I said yes. So on February 1st, 2006, I got up way earlier than usual. I went into 30 Rock. I got into a studio. I taped an interview with Michael Scheibo. Bluntly, he was as dull an interviewee as I could imagine, and my questions were deliberately not hysterical, but it was a good factual interview. And for a network that struggled as much as MSNBC, it was a big deal just for journalistic credibility, just to balance what we had been playing on the Scarborough show. Everybody at NBC News knew we were doing it. We recorded it at NBC News using NBC News control rooms and videotape. Everybody knew, including the president of NBC News, Steve Kappas, and the executive producers of Today, Nightly News, Dateline, all of whom were interested in using clips of the interview. After I finished, I went and visited the executive in charge of MSNBC in his office at 30 Rock. Then I went home and I took a nap before I went into MSNBC in the late afternoon to prepare my 8 p.m. show. When the phone rang there, it was Steve Kappas, president of NBC News. Look, you've interfered with the Today Show's longstanding plans and commitments. We have signed contracts with Michael Schiavo. Matt Lauer is furious. But I understand Shivo offered you this interview so you couldn't have known how you were violating the Today Show and Matt. I pointed out that Shivo had said specifically that he had not signed anything with anybody. The president of NBC News ignored this. Here's the offer Matt and I will make you. You don't run the interview tonight. We will run a segment of it tomorrow on Today, giving a full plug to Countdown. Then tomorrow night, you can run a four-minute segment. The rest of your interview can run, and I think despite what you've done to us, your interview should run after Matt Lowers does, sometime next month. I think this is a great idea since Matt wants me to fire you. I said this was the dumbest thing I had ever heard, which was saying a lot since I had spent nearly three years working at Fox. There was nothing about our interview that risked Matt Lowers' prospects of getting his own interview. In fact, it probably increased them. I could now pitch Michael Schiavo on Lauer's behalf. Michael Schiavo did not like Lauer. On the other end of the phone, Kappas gasped. Doesn't like Lauer? Don't say that! 
But to bury our interview for a month was crapping all over MSNBC and me and Michael Schiavo, and journalistically it was indefensible and it made me feel like walking out. Steve Kappas, whose later boss at NBC, told me that she fired him for telling her that he would never take orders from a woman, began to scream, as I noted at the time in my diary, like a 12-year-old. I offer you a way out and not getting fired and not get Matt Lauer on your ass and you threaten to quit? I pointed out that I had not threatened to quit. I told him that if there really had been a contract with Michael Schiavo, even if he had not mentioned it to me, any of the 100 NBC executives who had known about my interview with Michael Schiavo for like a week would have. I had even sent Brian Williams a note asking if there were any specific questions he wanted me to ask Schiavo so he could use a clip on NBC Nightly News. Somehow, Kappas began to scream again in an even higher-pitched voice. Matt Lauer advises me to simply kill your interview with Michael Schiavo, and I'm trying to find a way out for you. You start bringing up ancient history from a week ago? He really said that. Ancient history from a week ago. I said, why don't we do it this way? We run a 30-second clip tonight. The Today Show runs whatever it wants to tomorrow. Then we run the rest of the interview tomorrow night and the night after. Well, Kappas resumed screaming. So let me see if I got this straight. Matt Lauer is incensed over you stepping in on his interview. I'm offering you publicity on the Today Show and not getting fired. And your answer is we're going to run 17 minutes of it? I'm so impressed with your professionalism, Keith. I will always remember how cooperative you were. Fine. You do whatever you want, Mr. Professional. Run the whole half hour tonight. Don't you understand television? Matt needs to be able to say in his first interview since his wife's death. For the 53rd time in my career at NBC News, I thought somebody was secretly filming this and making a segment on it for, I don't know, punked? Or did they still run candid camera? Well, getting back to the interview here with Kappas, I said that in a month, nobody was going to remember my interview, and Matt could still say in his first network interview since his wife's death. Well, Kappas ignored that, too. I have been advised to kill the countdown piece outright, but you do whatever you want for your little countdown show. Go ahead, incur the enmity of Matt Lauer. You think he'll forget this? Over the next two years, Matt Lauer hired away two of my producers, then made a supposed peace offering by running a segment that was to be produced by my show every Friday on the Today Show that required two of my producers to stay up all night editing and thus not work on my show on Friday, by some strange coincidence, for four consecutive weeks, the countdown piece never ran. It was just more petty revenge. The Today Show also booked me as a guest four times, canceled all four times once the morning of my interview as I was shaving to go in and do the interview. The punchline, of course, my little interview back then with Michael Scheibo ran over the next three nights. It did not really affect our ratings. It did contribute some tiny amount to the tiny amount of actual journalism MSNBC had done on the Scheibo story. It counterbalanced that schmuck Scarborough. And on March 26, 2006, the Matt Lauer interview aired with Michael Scheibo. And as NBC publicity phrased it, Michael and his new wife sit down for their first network interview with NBC News' Matt Lauer. Just like I had suggested.
I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from our studios high atop the sports capsule building in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, which was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, doing his Bob Shepard impression. And everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 965th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants, as happened yesterday. Till the next one, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.